Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Johnny Greco, a data scientist working at Radiology Partners. Johnny transitioned into his current work from a career as an academic working in astronomy, where he also worked in open source space to build a really interesting synthetic image data project. We get into that project in our conversation, but we also discuss his experience of crossing over into industry, the skills that have served him in his new job, and his experience of working in a world where the stakes around models in production are much higher. He holds a PhD from Princeton, and we started by talking about his journey from academia into his current job. So uh, my name is Johnny Greco, and th thanks for having me, by the way. Uh, this, is, this is a lot of fun. I, I really dig your product, and have, I started listening to your podcast once, uh, once you invited me, and I, yeah, definitely enjoying it, so, so thanks for having me. Um, so right now, I'm a data scientist at Radiology Partners. Um, so, you know, my day-to-day -day mostly is, is doing NLP uh, on radiology reports um, and uh, building applications that are, that are designed to uh, make radiologists' workflows um, more efficient and, uh, you know, to, to help and make sure, you know, do some quality control to make sure that they're providing the best care they possibly can for their patients. Um, but I'm relatively new to, to being in the, the data science world. So this is uh, eight months since I left academia. So my training is, is all in astronomy and astrophysics. Um, so I uh, did my undergrad at, at Ohio State in, uh, where I majored in physics. Uh, and then I, I studied astrophysics at Princeton uh, and got my PhD in 2018. Uh, and so before I, I started my data science career, I was a, a postdoctoral fellow, again, at Ohio State. So I've, I've got a lot of family in Ohio. So there's always been an effort to try to, to make my way back here. Uh, and so that was, that was my position before I transitioned into data science uh, eight months ago. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am. That's the, 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 the big picture view. Um, so it's, I, I, I'm different than some of your guests. I think I, it seems uh, that you've had on your podcast. Cause I'm, I'm kind of like a newbie when it comes to, to diving into the world of, of data science. Um, uh, at least, I mean, I've been doing data science as an astronomer, you know, a lot of our skills are very transferable, but, uh, the things I think about <laughs> and the problems that I work on are very different. Uh, so, you know, but that, that's how I got to where I am at, at this moment. Uh, before that, I mean, I had a pretty interesting path to get there. I would definitely wasn't somebody who, um, you know, from a very early age, looked up at the stars and wanted to be an astronomer. I, I had no idea that I might one day be a scientist. Um, in fact, I, most of my life as a kid, I wanted to be in a, ro a rock band and be a rock star. So, so a lot of my, my early life was being in bands and, uh, you know, eventually going to college and dropping out of college to be like, to go tour with my band and stuff like that. Um, but then when it, when it came time to, 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 um, you know, maybe choose a different path, I thought science seemed really cool. Maybe it wasn't the most, in terms of time, it wasn't the most, uh, economical way to go. Right. Because I was like, all right, uh, this band thing's not going to work out, but I'm going to go to school for 10 years so I can be an astronomer. I was like, oh man, my wife, I don't know how she put up with it. I'm surprised she wasn't like, dude, that's crazy. Uh, she was, she was very supportive. Uh, and it was just, you know, the only other thing I could think of that I thought was really cool was, was astronomy. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get there. And then that's when I realized, oh, it's math, it's physics. And it turned out a lot of, uh, computer programming, which I ended up really liking. 
Um, and so that, that was how I ended up going that route. Uh, so it's sort of different from, you know, the traditional path you might think from somebody going into to astronomy. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super happy I did. And I'm even happier that it's gotten me to this point. You know, I, I couldn't have predicted it when I started that I'd actually be, you know, transitioning to industry. Um, my goal was always to be a professor. Um, but yeah, I couldn't be happier with, with uh, the, where it's taken me. It's, this is a really, really fun time to be working in data. Uh, and and the, the problems we're getting to think about her are new and and really fun. I actually was a bit surprised where you said you're doing NLP uh, NLP work now. I totally would have thought yeah. you would be doing computer vision things, given your background. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I um my I was so when I saw this position open up at uh, Radiology Partners, that is exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking, man. Uh, image processing is all I've been right. doing this whole time. <laughs> I want to get my hands on some images. Uh, and, you know, that, that was my initial goal. But it, this our, our team, most of what they were doing when I when I joined the team was NLP. And it's it's, you know, part of it is it's there's just a lot of work to to do in terms of, um, you know, applying AI and, and deep learning and just standard, you know, old school programming stuff to to help rads do their jobs more efficiently um because this is a relatively new application of these these mm. tools right um and so that means there's a lot to do just with the radiology reports because they're you know that's what their day the day-to-day -day looks like of radiologists they're dictating reports as they see them um and you know there's so there was a lot of work to do there and that's where our group started um but the one fun thing is we're just now starting to get into the images but it's brand new uh so mm -hmm. i will like i have uh, within the last couple months, gotten my hands on some pixels, uh, which made me feel like it was just just like, you know, riding a right. bike. I was like, oh, this is so fun. Um, and I definitely love it. Uh, the thing that I didn't expect, though, was to to really uh, kind of fall in love with NLP. It's a it is a really fun area that I didn't anticipate liking so much. The problems are really hard and really interesting that, that you're trying to solve in NLP. And it's um, it, quite different in terms of the way uh, you think about the problems then if you're just, you know, if you're, if you're measuring, uh, the light intensity in pixels, which is what I spent all of my graduate, uh, you know, career doing. Um, so, but yeah, that is a, that is a funny, funny point, but yeah. So you've gone from not only from kind of dealing with pixels to now dealing with words, but you've also made this transition from academia into industry. I'm interested to, to hear a little bit about like what your sense of that experience has, uh, has been, like what were the kind of the steepest parts or the the hardest parts or the unexpected parts of that transition? Yeah, that's, that is like such a good question. It's something I thought a lot about. I mean, it was for, for a long time, it was a very hard decision to face. Um, but in the end, it, and it was, there was just no question in my mind and it became an easy decision, but that whole path to get to that point, it took a while. Um, you know, because we, when you're in academia or at least in my experience in astronomy, there's like this feeling that, um, you know, you, if you go into industry, you've sort of, it, it almost feels like you've Sold failed, out. you know, like I, I, yeah, like I just, you know, I, I am, uh, leaving academia and, that that feel it's sort of stigmatized at this stage. I mean, I think it's getting a lot better, mm -hmm. um, but you just you feel almost like you failed. Um, but so so that just that mindset, you know, it took me a while to get to the point where I felt like uh, okay with saying I want to go into industry. Um, but 
you know, for me, there was a lot of uh, personal things that that came into play. I mean, I think, you know, uh, so when I actually made the transition, I, I started my new job in 20, 2021. Um, and so that meant like all through 2020 and the pandemic, I was just at home during lockdown and thinking about, you know, what, what am I doing? Um, what is it that I want to spend my time working on? Like, what what is it that I want to contribute to the world, uh, you know, when I'm doing my work? And it was hard, honestly, for me during the pandemic to see everything that was happening and then to be working on something that felt so disconnected from humans, you know, mm-hmm. um, and which is you know, not to say that astronomy isn't deeply important, because I, I really think it is. Of course, that's why I spent the time to get a PhD studying it. Right. But um, but it just started to feel like personally that I wanted to work on problems that touched humanity in some way in any way it doesn't have to be you know curing cancer just just in a way that i felt like i could sort of uh in a short time scale see some impact on mm-hmm. on people and so that that was i think once that sort of that clicked in my mind uh the decision became much easier and the, i would say that what i was surprised to find although you know maybe i shouldn't have been surprised but what i was surprised to find is uh that I'm really interested in all the problems that we're getting to ask. And there's so many interesting things going on in all sorts of fields uh, in industry, um, you know, and I find them super interesting, just as interesting as all the other problems I was working on. It's just different, you know, and that kind of surprised me because I think when I went into astronomy initially, it was like, oh, well, I'm studying astronomy because I, I get to think about the, these the biggest problems ever. Like where did we come from, and you know the the universe, how galaxies formed, all these things. And so it felt like you know coming back down to earth and thinking about smaller problems. I I would uh, find them less interesting, but that just was not the case at all. Like I, I in fact have just am now devour, devouring everything I can about NLP and just machine learning in general. And so this this podcast is about ML ops, like all these new problems to think about uh and it, they're all super interesting so that that for me was the the pleasant uh surprise i guess you know was it the case then that while you were working in academia i guess some of these problems just either weren't a thing or you didn't have the space or the time to explore just random things while you were in that field yeah that's oh that's a really good question so i honestly, I always wanted to find a way to inject machine learning and deep learning and stuff like that, that I could explore into my, my work. Um, It it just happened that it's the things that I was working on and I did my thesis on. It just never, it didn't quite come to fruition where I really thought it was necessary to apply those tools. And because there is a lot in astronomy of, of, uh, you know, machine learning and, and deep learning being applied to problems where you really don't need those tools. And it's just, just because people want to play with those tools. And I, 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 I never did that even maybe I should have, I don't know. Cause it's fun. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. So in terms of side projects, I certainly learned on my own and stuff, but like, for example, going into natural language processing was just felt so far away from what I was working on. I didn't even know that I would like it, <laughs> you know, like it was, uh, but definitely thinking about convolutional neural networks and how I might, um, use use those to help me in the, the you know the the problems that I was working on that involved uh, playing with pixels uh, you know of images of galaxies and things. I definitely thought a lot about that, and there's been really great work on that. Um, but yeah, I, di- I didn't get to venture off too deeply into those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What have been the unexpected skills from your 
old world which you found useful in the new yeah so so like it, you know i think we there's the obvious things that we all knew were going to be transferable like okay you're programming you 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 have to have some grasps of mathematics and statistics to do what you're you know to work in astronomy um and so all of those things were were of course going to be transferable um i think the the thing that i immediately felt like i could see uh that that i'm was drawing upon from my time in academia like when i when i got my job as a data scientist was just the the ability to um approach an open-ended problem you know and uh first of all not be afraid right and to know how to tackle that problem um and sort of to construct an experiment to solve whatever problem you're after and it's a problem that doesn't have a stack overflow solution you know um th that that skill is something you really have to hone when you're when you're working on a, a new research problem um you know when you're when you're a graduate student and that was something that I immediately could tell was was very valuable when I started, um, you know, working on these NLP problems, uh, looking at radiology reports. And it, it was just it was it was surprising to me how quickly that the, the transfer happened, because it just it was just applying the same exact skill set to a different problem. That's just this. Again, it's the idea of of, a, of having an, a very open ended problem with no clear solution and um, figuring out how you want to tackle it. And you know how to do the research to figure out what's already been done, and then all those steps that you have to take to to approach this this problem that that you is totally new to you, and it may be in some cases totally new to, to anyone, right? And and that that's something you have to get very comfortable with um, when, when you're working in in academia. Um, you know, th there is the, the caveat there, of course, is one big difference is in academia. You know, there's it, sometimes it's you, you can fall into being a perfectionist and you're worried about because you're going to, you know, you're going to submit your work uh, to, to a journal. It's going to be peer reviewed. Um, and so you really are trying to reach perfection um, in, in your analysis and in your results and, and your, you know, but one thing that I'm trying to come around to, which I know is important in, in industry is it's, it's, you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, it really is about getting to a finished product. Um, and you always and, need to understand why something is happening or, yeah, 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 and that just so that's a, that is a change um, where you know uh, apl just applying the skills from academia blindly could get you in trouble because you have to remember, wait a minute, this isn't a research project that I'm going to publish. This is like we want to actually have a product like at by this date, and you know, so that means you have to to look at the possible solutions you're going to take, um, and you know, not let perfect be the enemy of the good. That's what I always have to remind myself of that. Mm -hmm. For sure. Something which I, I guess I wonder whether also applies to you, because I also came from a kind of academic background. I really found that the communication skills that I'd kind of honed while working on my dissertation and so on, they feel like a little bit of a superpower in this world <laughs> where like people, engineers aren't necessarily trained to write well or to compress a lot of ideas down into the concise argument or something like that. Did, have you found that as well? Yeah, that actually, that's a really good point. Cause you know, you're forced to lot, the technical writing has to be so concise and, and uh, yeah, absolutely. So, cause you do spend in academia too, though, you spend a wild amount of time, like writing emails and, you know, messaging back and forth about various things and then pre presenting to stakeholders, things like that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. And, you know, I, 
because in academia, there's tons of moments where you're you're giving a presentation to a pretty intimidating crowd, you know, like it, whether it's at a conference or, or you know, uh, it's recently it's been over Zoom. Um, and that that is something that you just almost take for granted because it's just part of your job in academia. You're doing it all the time. Um, yeah, that, that, I didn't even sort of connect those dots um, in terms of how much that's helped me, I think. And But you're absolutely right. I have I have felt that. Mm-hmm. Um. Obviously, there's this kind of trope or meme or whatever of the split or divisions or, or, or whatever, like the contrast between industry and academia. And, you know, there's all these stereotypes of, I guess, how the two behave. How do you see that divide? Like, do you do you see it as a divide, really? Are there ways that they could learn from each other? Yeah, that's a OK. So that's a good question. I feel like I feel like I have a sort of. I don't know how good of a view I have of this at this stage. So I have, so one thing I should say about the data science team I'm on, um, <laughs> like four of us are past astronomers, uh, and the the director it, it was a an astronomer, and she so she's amazing, and she. But I I get the feeling that so, you know sometimes the you know be, because of that the dynamic of the full team is is closer to what I was feeling in academia uh, in terms of like collaborating on a team. Although I, maybe maybe that's not true. I don't know. Maybe this is how it feels in other places too. I don't know. But we're because we're a small data science team um, in, embedded in a large, a very large uh, radiology practice. Uh, but but in terms of the people we interact with day to day, it's a small team, um, and so it, it feels very similar in terms of you know talking on we talk on Teams and message on Teams, um, and we're sharing code you know um, and stuff like that and. So I think so. With that, I would say um, maybe I don't have the best perspective in terms of making the comparison, um, but you know, it there it, it's just the problems that, that that are being worked on in industry and academia are. I mean, maybe they use the same tools. It's but it's always like the goals are very different, um, and so it's hard to um, make for me to draw that line of like what the different camps in terms of their behaviors, because the things that we're doing that I can tell are very, uh, you know, industry, uh, like are on my team now are things that are because what we're doing, the, the problems we're working on and the goals we have lend themselves to that. If that makes sense, like the whole idea of you, this agile, you know, work environment and, and, you know, Jira tickets with very specific things that you're going to do. I, I, the idea of trying to implement something like that in, in academia, I, I don't, you know, it just isn't quite how it goes because basically in academia, it's like uh, you go to your office and you just wonder what the heck you're going to do next. And then uh, you start experimenting and you sort of uh, take a random walk to get to where you're going to go. And then by the time you get to where you're going, you realize you you know you solved a different problem than than you were setting out to and that, and that's okay in academia because mm-hmm. it's super you know you're doing research you're you're trying to find new knowledge whereas in in something like where we're at now at at radiology partners it's like you're you can apply new methods but at the end it's like you have a very specific goal that, that was something you're trying to do um, and a very specific time frame within which you want to do it um, and there's no incentive to use state-of-the-art tools if you can get the job done with something very simple, you know? Uh, in fact, the simple thing would probably be preferred. Uh, and so the, the just those, in my mind, those sorts of differences and the goals of the two, to the two, like academia versus industry is, uh, uh, makes it understandable to me that they would, there would be that divide. One big difference or a commonly observed difference between, between academia and industry is that 
there often isn't much, if any, kind of attention given to like the deployment of the models that you're working on or yeah or even thinking about how how this might work in a scenario outside the specific confines of your particular laptop in your particular place or whatever i'm curious about like how yeah whether you've encountered this like what you felt about moving into this world where like production is far more of a thing that's see there you go that was a good answer to your 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 first question there about what ones can learn from the other uh, yeah okay um, very good point, right? Because so uh, when you're in academia, like when you're doing research um, and you, you know, you, you develop some model to and apply it to some problem, or at least so in astronomy, it, you know, it isn't, they're, they're taking um, existing deep learning architectures and things and, and applying them to solve different problems. So it isn't just for the model's sake, it's to solve some other problem, like, I, I, you know, classifying galaxies um, and something like that. Um, but in that case, you know, the, the goal is always just like get get the model working, you know, build your sample of galaxies and publish your paper. And it ends there. Um, and th 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 this idea of, you know, productionalizing your model, putting it somewhere where other people can use it and understand, uh, you know, all of the stages of that model's growth. Um, and, and, you know, importantly, to, uh, to deeply understand the data that was used to train it and things like that, like that hasn't really come around, uh, at least in, in in astronomy. Um, and the same goes, I would say, in astronomy, although there's been a lot more work on this in terms of doing reproducible work, um, you know, sharing the code you used uh, and um, being very transparent about all of those things. So if somebody wanted, they could they could grab your code and 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 uh, read, you know, redo your analysis to just to verify it or to to expand upon it. Um, now, the coding aspect, you mentioned AstroPy. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, incredible uh, software development going on uh, within the astronomy world um, and much of it open source. And so that I can see that shifting. Um, but this idea of um, productionalizing your model um, and, and sharing it in a way that that people can, uh, you know, apply it to their new data set or maybe expand upon the model that isn't hasn't really become a thing. And so, yeah, like MLOps, like is not, nobody's thinking about that uh, in, in, well, at least in astronomy, I, I doubt most, most areas that are applying deep learning. It's just, it's just not, you know, something you're thinking about because your goal is to solve a specific problem that you're, you're working on in that moment. Um, whereas it, just totally the opposite is true in industry, right? Because you, you are, uh, you know, you have stakeholders that are depending on you to solve some particular problem uh, and you're going to put a model out into the world. And you're gonna you you have to monitor that model, um, and especially when you're thinking about machine learning, and that model depends upon data, right? Where data can change, and, and so many you know various things can happen uh, that can make your model's performance degrade. And so you have to think about uh, how you're actually going to do that. And so that's this whole idea of of what what MLOps is trying to achieve. Um, but I could definitely see how uh, those that skill set that's being or the technologies that are being developed around MLOps. Uh, you know, where academia could really learn from that and thinking about, uh, you know, you could imagine something like a, like a hugging face hub, right? Where, where, you know, astronomers might load their models and say, Hey, look, you know, you can, you can grab this model. You can, you can fine tune the model easily. You know what I mean? Um, that, that would be an incredible thing for, for academia to go that direction. That, that would be great. In a way, it's a little strange that academia hasn't already bought into this. We're talking about science. Science is 
really should be about you know reproducible results and i guess the fact that we have this huge reproducibility crisis like yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. tells you the other side of that story but you'd think academia would be totally primed for a world where this is an important thing as part of the, the discipline yeah i i agree i mean there, it's certainly the case there is a there is a subset uh, of people you know within academia who are all about this idea uh, and I'm sure are, you know, thinking of clever ways to to implement these things. Um, but yeah, it definitely is by no means um, the the sort of consensus position of people, mainly because it's it's hard, right? Like, is it if you want to do it right? Like, so the simpler example from sharing your models is sharing your code, right? Um, and that it's just most of the time when when people are working on analyses, uh, and writing code to do it, they're just cooking up some small scripts that they probably don't want anybody to ever see, uh, and then they you know they run it on their data, and what they show in the end is uh, some table or something that's the process data, and then their results, right? And you know, so th they would never consider sharing their code or at least their code having a user other than themselves, and that you know, getting around that is a difficult, I think, because it, it requires, it's, it's a, a very large learning curve for someone who's never thought for a moment about sharing their code. Uh, and I, I guess that's, that's where the trouble becomes. It's just uh, making it easy for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to get your take on the idea of best practices in, in this area as well, because obviously there are some best practices in kind of foundational ways. But in other ways, like it's it's a fast moving field, like every day or week, there are new tools and technologies to enable all of this reproducibility. And this whole world of MLOps is just a growing and a very fastly changing universe. And yeah, I'm interested how your experience has been watching as this, this changes around your feet as you're working in it. Do you mean in academia or, or now? It, or nowadays, nowadays, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so for me, the this this the way I kind of think about it, and by by means, I would know, I wouldn't say that I'm uh, <laughs> expert in practicing best practices, and you know what I mean. It's I'm still learning very much sure. every day about the yep. best way to do these things. But the way I've begun to think about it is just to care very deeply about reproducibility in all aspects of everything that I'm working on. And that that kind of naturally pushes you towards a lot of the best practices that, that are being adopted in terms of how you develop your code that you're going to use to perform your analyses, version control, all the standard things that uh, we think about when we're starting a new project. And then I think that also this idea of trying to be reproducible trickles down in the ML ops, because if, if you're worried about reproducibility, then you begin to worry about the history of the data, how the data got to the way it is. And just trying to streamline that whole approach is what pushes you towards the, the best practices. And that's still something I'm trying, especially on the ML ops end, is something I'm still very much trying to learn. There's a lot of new tools out there that try to make this process easy for you. And then sometimes I'm always debating, oh gosh, should I learn this new tool or should I just have it write out an output file that, that says, you know, the history of my data or something? Because right. right now I don't want to climb that learning curve. I got a deadline to meet, you know? But in terms of best practices, for me, it's just making reproducibility easy, not just for the code and running the code, but the data that you produce and always being able to track down, you know, for a given data set, like which scripts were used to generate it and what parameters were chosen so that 
reproducing at any phase is easy to do. Yeah, yeah. Do you, in your work, do you often work kind of end-to-end, I guess, in terms of the problems? Are you dealing with the whole life cycle of what you're doing, or are you dealing with small chunks? So I am... I, no, not the full life cycle. I am dealing with, uh, you know, starting from, you know, coming up with the solution, uh, getting the, the data, processing the data, and then developing the, the, the sort of the back end solution that, you know, that's going to solve the problem, uh, which so in practice, that basically means there's the you know, pip installable package that's going to do this thing. Um, and then we have uh, uh, people working on the ML ops side who are actually going to deploy it. Um, and I think, you know, we haven't gotten there yet on this, this first project that I'm leading up, but I, uh, I'm hoping to get my hands in there and worry as well about, or, or maybe more so just learn from people who have done this. Like what are the things that they do, uh, when they take that final step of pushing something into production. But at this stage, what I've tried to do is connect with them and, and figure out, you know, what are the best choices to make right now, um, while we're just building this uh, the, you know, solving the solution and building a package that is, is going to, to solve it. Um, and, you know, how do we make your job easy in the end when you want to do the, the ML ops aspect? Sorry, my dog mm-hmm. is playing with the, the doorstop over there. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's in terms of the life cycle, I, I basically am getting it to the point of production and then passing it over. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. And is there ever any points where people then come back to you or is there ever any back and forth there? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I should say this is all, um, in terms of the team I'm on right now, uh, we mostly are all new people because they, so they were, it was like five data scientists or something around there um, for a few years up to like 2021. And then they, they hired me and a bunch of new people. So we're, we're kind of, just figuring out exactly what are our roles, you know, I, um, what does it mean if you're a data scientist versus the machine learning engineer, you know, and I, I suspect this is true for a lot of companies, especially small ones who are Mm -hmm. starting to realize, Oh, AI, like this data science thing, we probably need to do it if we want to stay competitive. Um, And so they're building smaller teams. And then there's just this question of like, what, where do the responsibilities lie? Um, And I think for us, it, the lines are blurry. I mean, we definitely have our our uh, specific goals that we know we're in charge of, but I can see for sure there's going to be a lot of communication back and forth, you know, just so that we make sure our solution that we're building uh, is, you know, meeting up to all the standards that they need, you know, when they're pushing it out into the real world uh, and we make it easy for, for them to, you know, use our tool in the way they need to. Mm-hmm. And I guess since you're dealing with, or assume you're dealing dealing with kind of medical data, like there's all sorts of constraints and things that you have to live up to, or else there are like financial and legal consequences. Yeah, yeah, that's been a new thing for me too. Yeah, because the data is sensitive, and you know, so so that you know, in the end, when we're things, the code and stuff we're sharing back and forth never includes any of the sensitive data. Um, and there's like a particular uh, storage place we can go to to get the data to to do our training and things. Um, but yeah, you're right. That is, that, that makes things more complicated. It's the, you know, it's the kind of thing where we've been told, don't you ever, ever accidentally push a Jupyter notebook to GitHub because who knows what's in those cells, you know? So we, yeah, we, we definitely have to be careful. Probably wise. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah, machine learning in production and, and I guess all of the associated kind of MLOps tools and, and, and practices and so on. 
as we, we've been discussing, it's this field which has been building up around us and we're working in it at the same time. But it's definitely, at least from my perspective, it's a field where it's easy to feel like there's so much happening, like you're not keeping up or like everyone else like knows so much more than you know or yes. just there's a thousand other skills and frameworks and stuff which you need to get into you know on top of and only if you explore all of these things then you can reach the top of that mountain and you kind of feel confident at what you do i, I wonder if you, you can relate to any of this um in, in your own work now yeah a- absolutely i think that that um it's just like you said there is so much uh so much so many new tools um and new practices and you know uh basically new ways of doing what people are calling ml ops uh that are you know it's just rapidly evolving and so you know i know when i first entered uh data science i was super um i it was i had a big uh sense of uh, imposter syndrome really right i felt like man, I don't know anything about any of this because like all I did was study stars and galaxies and uh, now you want me to, you know, use natural language processing and be thinking about what it means to put this this package into production. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I experienced, I'm still experiencing that actually, right? Because we're, uh, each thing is new. Each phase we get in with this project that I'm, I'm working on is, is requiring me to think more um, about, <clears throat> you know, how, what's the best way to accomplish the next steps. Um, and I guess for me, I felt, I feel lucky because I, the team I have is, has been, they've been super supportive, you know? And so there are, we have people who are experts in these things and it's, it's, they're very open to, to just chatting about it. Uh, they, they understand where I'm coming from. And, um, so yeah, that, that's, that's been an important point. It's just having people around you who are, um, you know, willing to share that knowledge, um, about how best to do these things but it's i think the interesting thing that makes it kind of fun to watch is that like how best to do these things is that's changing all the time uh just with all the different tools that are being developed um and so it's you kind of get to have the fun of 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 learning it along with people who even though they've been in this field uh for a while you know you're kind of you're seeing the new things that are coming online um and and uh, making decisions that they probably weren't thinking about themselves a few years ago you know Mm mm-hmm have you found that there are certain things, I guess, that make it easy? I don't know. I'm thinking in, in specific, like sometimes when you go to learn a new tool, when the developers or, or, or the company that's behind it, let's say, have like really thought about writing great documentation that can take a lot of the edge off that. Are there any <laughs> other things like that where, yeah, where which you found are, like helpful? Yes, actually. Uh, th- this is something I was recently thinking about. Um, it's just what you say. It's like when when the developers, uh, it's clear they've been very thoughtful about their documentation. Gosh, that helps a lot, especially for, for a newbie coming in uh, with imposter syndrome working on. So in my mind, I'm thinking of NLP. And so one, uh, the package that I I love and it has taught me a lot is the Spacey package. Actually, you had, yeah, you uh, yeah. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. So she's she's amazing, and 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 Spacey's amazing, but um, they their documentation, you know, includes like this tutorial. It's like, but it isn't just um, it isn't just a tutorial that's like, okay, look, you here's this classes that we've created. You could call it like this, call it like that. It more feels like it's really kind of introducing you to the problems you'll tackle in NLP, and then how Spacey's useful. And you know, you'll once you finish that, I think it's called Spacey One Hundred and One or something. Uh, once you finish that, you really walk away feeling like, wow, I I 
actually feel like I'm going to be able to apply this package to solve interesting problems. And I could do that right now. Like, uh, so that, that was a, a great example of like good documentation and well, not just good, but just thoughtful, like thinking about their user and, um, not assuming that their users are, you know, computational linguists who who get all this stuff already. They could maybe there's somebody who's just a random astronomer who stumbled into NLP, and you know maybe they, they know how to code, but gosh, they need they need a little handholding right now. And uh, now, uh, yeah, that's that. As you can see, Spacey is one of my favorite packages right now because I'm doing a lot of NLP. But yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I can imagine particularly in the coming. Even I can say months, maybe, but certainly years, there are just going to be so many more people coming from non-traditional backgrounds into this into this area and trying to yeah. apply machine learning and so on to their own problems. It's just going to be such a an important thing if, yeah, uh, otherwise you'll just lose people, basically, if you assume they have come from a CS background. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um so, so open source projects like Spacey and then, of course, Hugging Face, you know, that, just, that are making not just machine learning, but state of the art models very accessible to anyone. Um, uh, you know, the impact it's already having just, you know, on me and my eight months in data science has been huge. Um, and so you just you, you think about it as these things grow, like you say, becoming more inclusive, you know, the more minds you get in on this, uh, the more amazing things that, that we're going to do as a field. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I guess even you have some of this somehow in in your background as well with was it Art Pop, where was a, a educational project as well. Yeah, that kind yeah. of broader universe of, of people involved. Yeah, so yeah, so Art Pop, so it stands for Artificial uh, Stellar Populations. So it's a it's a very astronomy thing. Um, uh, it turns out that Lady Gaga has an album or something called Art Pop, and I only knew realized this when I started to talk about Art Pop, our package on Twitter, and I used like the People hashtag Art Pop, it. and and it was like, oh, this is <laughs> maybe this isn't the best <laughs> <Something> hashtag, <else>. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, anyways, it it still worked out. But um, yeah, so that's it's the uh, I guess it was the biggest open source thing that I worked on as an astronomer, uh, and it was uh, this so you know, one of the things that you need to do a lot when you're working on a problem in astronomy, um, you need to simulate data to, to try to understand what's going on in the real data. This happens all the time. Uh, it could be you're trying to detect a particular type of galaxy or star cluster. Uh, and so what you might do is you might simulate such a galaxy or cluster uh, and then put them into either a real image and try to find them or to, um, you know, create a completely artificial image with in which you can develop, you know, your image processing algorithms and things like that. Uh, and so ArtPop is, uh, it's really an engine to help astronomers do this. So part of the problem that it helps make simple and, and easy to use, uh, you know, firing up a Jupyter notebook is, you know, how do you go about when you're building a galaxy, you, you oh, my dog, sorry. <laughs> um, when you're building a galaxy, your galaxies are made of stars. Uh, and so how do you choose the properties of those stars? And so that's, this is where the stellar population uh, part of art pop comes in. It's, it's this idea of, um, you know, there's, there's a worked out framework in astronomy where, you know, given the age of a stellar population, given its, its um, composition, like its metal content, as, as we say in, in uh, mm -hmm. astronomy, 
um, given those factors, you know, can you predict the distribution of of the masses of those stars or the distribution of uh, the their brightnesses? And so you need that information if you're going to go ahead and, and try to make an image of them. So our pop sort of it starts by doing that uh, for the user. Uh, uh, but then the the part that's the most fun about the code is to uh, it takes those stars that you've created and it and it makes artificial images for you. So this involves like you know uh, in the in the language that we use you 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 um, you need what we call a point spread function. So this is just like what does a point source look like uh, in your image, and then given that uh, you know create an image with all these stars. Uh, which when you put them together and you, you end up with this pretty picture that looks like a, a small galaxy. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's the idea of art pop. But when I was make building it and, and sort of making some of the design choices, I really wanted it to be a pedagogical tool. Um, and the reason for that is because it taught me a lot just building mm -hmm. it. Like I, so for example, like, you know, I spent my graduate studies looking at images of real galaxies and they, you know, they might have a particular color or structure, um, and what I was able to do with ArtPop was begin to create objects that looked almost exactly the same when I when I made a synthetic image, same colors, you know, and then it sort of just built this insight of like, what does it mean when I see a blob in a in a real astronomical image that has these colors? What does that mean? Well, having something like ArtPop lets me, I know what I put in, right? So I kind of mm -hmm. get this sense of like, well, it's a mixture of stars with these ages and things like that. And so... It given how much I learned from it, I wanted the tool uh, to be very easy for people to use so that students maybe could get a chance to have that experience. Um, and yeah, and I know I've I've been reached out to by by a couple different astronomy professors uh, around the U.S. who have said they're definitely including it in their stars class, uh, you know, coming up. And so that that makes me thrilled. Um, and uh, we've had a couple contributions already. And, you know, it's a very kind of niche uh, program. It's, you know, astronomers, there's a lot of, uh, things that require a lot of, uh, base knowledge to get to use mm -hmm. in terms of the stellar populations and things. But, um, I'm definitely, you know, excited to see, uh, people using it and, uh, learning from it, you know, and I hope, I hope contributing to it because I, I would love to see the package continue to grow, uh, and, and reach more people. Is there anything else you've learned just like running a relatively popular kind of open source project that, that, lessons you've learned along the way? Well, I mean, there's all the skills about how, how do you put a package together? How, how do you, um, well, simple things that, that you, you don't realize are, uh, easier to do, uh, before you actually, you know, so when you're thinking about making a really pretty document website, you think, gosh, that's, you got to like understand how to, you know, do web development or something. Mm -hmm. So really learning about that world and like Sphinx documentation and like how mm -hmm. you can generate automatically uh, the documentation for your open source project using the doc strings in your code. You know, those sorts of things were very new to me. I mean, I had a little bit of experience like seeing how, so contributing a bit to projects like AstroPy and seeing how these things are done. I mean, actually those were the, those were the sorts of things that got me pushing me along this path of doing an open source code. Um, but actually having to go through the process from the you know beginning to end, um, uh, yeah, that was very illuminating. Like, how do you even how do you even begin to make a package? First of all, that's pip installable uh, and has pretty documentation on read the docs. Like, just that adventure uh, was was very. I was learning stuff every day when I was going through that, uh, and pleasantly surprised with once you get used to the syntax and things, how simple it can be. You know, mm -hmm. given given things like Sphinx and and mm -hmm. and you know. 
the ability to load them up on read the docs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe there'll be more, more yeah. open source projects and stuff coming, coming out. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I love, I love that. That's, you know, that's been the one thing that's tough for me in industry. You know, it, it just depends on what, if, what company you're working for in terms of, um, whether or not you'll be able to develop open source tools as part of your job. Um, and I think a, a lot of places it's probably not really possible uh, given what you're doing. So that's, that's a part where I'm feeling like, ah, I need to tr- try to pick up something, a little side project or something to, to try to put more code out into the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious just to bring us full circle, I guess, back to, back to astronomy. We've had other people on the podcast who come from a, a physics background, which I guess is at least astronomy adjacent. And, you know, to some extent, as far as I understand the history of how how deep learning and machine learning and all of these techniques, computational techniques have been used, like a lot of these, these sciences have been using them for years, decades, even without necessarily making anything fancy of them. It's just, well, this is just <laughs> math, science, whatever. But now, obviously, the techniques have been developed certainly in in certain directions and certain things which weren't possible before are now i'm curious where you see like the potential of using these these techniques to better understand the universe but move the field of astronomy forward are there any kind of low-hanging fruit that you can see there (laughs) oh yeah i think there are a lot of low-hanging fruit that people are as we speak grabbing you know it's it is uh it is really ripe uh with problems that um you know these sorts of tools that we've been talking about um, can help solve. And so really, you know, the reason for that is, uh, you know, for most of human history, you know, from when Galileo, uh, you know, up until like, you know, the year 1990 or something, you know, most, Mm -hmm. most of astronomy was looking at one object at a time and doing science on that object. You know, you would have PhD thesis about a single galaxy, uh, you know, or two galaxies or something. Mm-hmm. But what really changed, you know, in the in the late 1990s and, and really got going in, in the year 2000 were our ability to do very large surveys of the sky and to make that data uh, accessible publicly and to have catalogs of objects within that data uh, made, made av- available publicly. And so then you immediately get into this place where instead of studying one object, you're studying populations of objects. And then you can begin to ask questions about, you know, the large scale structure of the universe itself um, and the evolution of galaxies uh, within the universe, because now you're looking at large populations of these systems, right? It isn't just the handful that, that uh, we can see uh, nearby our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Um, And so a lot of work has been done you know, non, so really non machine learning methods, things um, like just standard image processing techniques and things to go in and detect as many sources as you can in these images. Um, And then based off of that, there's been really heroic efforts, things like galaxy zoo where humans go in and and look at, uh, I think I was just looking at this today. uh, So galaxy zoo, we're talking about something like 70,000 people have contributed where they're looking at astronomy images and they've classified something like 4 million objects of like, Mm -hmm. this is a spiral galaxy. This is an elliptical galaxy. This is a star, you know, those sorts of things. Um, But what's happening now and and now as in like, you know, this year, so there's, is it this, I think it's the end of this year, a new telescope is going to come online. Mm -hmm. 
it's it's uh, it's called the Vera Rubin Observatory, and the 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 project it's executing is called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. I think those are the right words, but it, LSST is what we would call it uh, in astronomy. And LSST is going to you know image the entire southern sky every like three days. And it's just going to do it over and over again. And so we're talking about tens of terabytes every single night of data. Like until, you know, before this point, our biggest sky surveys were basically like, you know, a quarter of the sky or something like that. And so basically LSST is going to produce that uh, at a, at a crazy cadence, right? We're going to get data of that, that scale. And so that it's just not going to be possible, or at least it would take a really long time. It wouldn't be very feasible to have something like Galaxy Zoo, right? Where you're going in and having humans try to do this. Yep. Um, and so these are this is a place exactly where you can see deep learning and the you know machine learning coming in and really helping. And, and there's been people who have done really cool work on this. Um, there's actually this project. It's called it's open source. I think it's called Morpheus. Um, and it's so the I know the astronomer, his name is Brant Robertson. He's in he's at Santa Cruz and his team, you know, his postdocs he's worked with. have built this tool that and, and really thinking about LSST was their goal. Uh, and so what they did is they they trained uh, a neural network using. Um, so the Hubble Space Telescope is another observatory that that people have probably heard of. So this is like our, uh, just like the flagship mission of astronomy for, for a long time now. And it's, it's coming to an end of its life, but it, it takes these pristine images because it's out in space and it's, it's got a pretty big mirror. Um, and so they use data from the Hubble space telescope where people had gone in and, and, you know, found all the galaxies in that image. Uh, and then they take those images and made them look like they would if LSST were to observe them, uh, you know, so th there's some downgrading that happens because we're on Earth. We have to look to an atmosphere. So they but they given those images, they know now where all the galaxies are based off of the human uh, the human labeling. Uh, and they've built this neural network that does, um, I guess. So in the, the AI community, it'd be called like semantic segmentation, where they're basically every single pixel in the image. They're they're saying, does this belong to a galaxy? Does this belong mm -hmm. to a star? You know, is this what is this? Uh, and they've been able to show that it, it's getting incredible results on their their data. That's this this sort of quasi simulated data where they've got, um, you know, HST images that they're using as their reference. Uh, and so things like this, I, you know, I could see have, have being this huge potential where um, these you know, the toolkit of, of the deep learning community, you know, convolutional neural networks, things that are, you know, well tested within the deep learning community are are getting ready to be applied at a very big scale uh, in astronomy to, to, to data sets like like LSST. I mean, that's the one I think about the most because when I, you know, I was sort of ramping up to, to want to work on that if I was going to stay mm -hmm. in astronomy. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's I can't even imagine that amount of data like but this is where you really that's why you need <laughs> when you're really getting into big data world. That's where, you know, machine learning uh, becomes super useful because it there's a lot of data uh, to be had. Yeah. yeah, and I can imagine there it's also like a place where lessons from industry can be really valuable there because you think of, I don't know, who's doing like huge computer vision problems, Tesla or whatever, like they probably deal with like huge amounts of data all the time. And so all of that, absolutely. those lessons will need to come back into the, to, to the field of academia as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that that is something where astronomy really has had to um to learn from how how companies are solving these problems, just the data engineering aspect of like, how do you deal with these large of data sets? Because we already have 
uh, large data sets, right? They're very big and had to solve a lot of problems. Uh, but this is on a whole new scale. And so like you say, it's definitely looking to companies like Tesla and things like how are people handling this amount of, uh, you know, imaging data? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And fortunately, there's a lot of very smart people who are worrying about that and are, are yeah. uh, you know, I think I- I'm excited to see now as a, an outsider just watching uh, when this yeah. data, you know, starts to, to uh, be ready for science, which I think, because so LSST is already, already built and they're, uh, you know, finishing up the engineering. So we're talking, we'll see science coming out, you know, hopefully 2023. Uh, so it's, it's a definitely a very exciting time to be thinking about how we might apply AI to, to astronomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and certainly this concept of the citizen data scientist as well. Who knows? Even though you're not necessarily in the field, you could still be involved. Somehow. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Galaxies is such an incredible project. You know, we we talked about is it four million classifications. You could never do that uh, with you. If, I mean, I right. guess you could have grad students who who just did it all day long and never finished. But uh, yeah, getting the world to to work on it is uh, really incredible. Yeah, and I can see lots of applications of that because sometimes you really just need to know as your baseline, how good are humans at doing this, uh, right. you know, b- before you can actually think about uh, training a model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we usually end our podcast with uh, a couple of questions. You can take them in whatever direction that you you would like. So first of all, what would you say would be a kind of a quick win that someone can add to make their productionization of models more robust? Ah, yeah, that's okay. So that's a good question. And I, I think I touched on this before. so, So to me, so if you weren't really worrying much about production and, and that you wanted to add one thing, it, it would be what I mentioned of, to start caring very deeply about reproducibility and let that guide you, um, you know. And so, th- maybe in terms of productionalizing your model, uh, one clear path to go is like really keeping track of the history of your data. Um, but in the end, I feel like the guiding principle of wanting to be able to to reproduce uh, your analysis from start to finish, including, um, you know, including the data products, uh, is is the biggest win. For you could get in terms of shifting your thinking. Nice. And what would you say would be one part of putting a model in production that you think should be given more attention by people making tools in the MLOps space, like ourselves, let's say? Yeah. Okay. That, that's something I've been thinking about. Like, it's a good question. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. So, one aspect. And maybe it doesn't feel right to talk about with ML ops. Maybe it'd be better to talk about with model ops is the phrase or something. But something that I've found, um, and I believe will probably be true for for most companies, you know, that are just starting with data science, is often you don't need machine learning to solve your your problem. Um, you know, so that's I like the motto of uh, the first rule of machine learning is you you probably don't need machine learning. You know, and so. But you know, nevertheless, you you build complicated models that will uh, end up being rules based with with uh, <laughs> nested if statements, as we say, just tons of different rules that lead you to uh, whatever decisions being made at the end. And I, you know, I don't I I don't know of good ways to track like how to do experiment tracking and like how do we keep track of our rules rule based models uh, in a way that is sort of seamlessly integrates with with an MLOps uh, framework. Um, and 
I mean, I don't know if there is work being done on that, but I my sense is that most of the focus is is not on rules based things. But I I I would love to see more uh, seamless integration of like, okay, I've got this pretty complicated rules based model, and I want to keep track of, you know, how, how like what the important rules are and what happens when I change the rules or if if certain things that are within our model, uh, you know, become to you know start to hurt and degrade the performance of the model over time, things like that. I I. Uh, I think would be great. Thank you very much for for coming on. I had a great time talking with you and learning about astronomy. Awesome, man! Yeah, no, thanks so much for the invitation. This this was a lot of fun. It was it was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people, and of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time. <laughs>